California Energy Markets is the premier source of independent news and information on the electric and natural gas sectors in California and the Southwest. Published weekly by NewsData since 1989, California Energy Markets covers energy policy, resources, markets, infrastructure, and other vital topics. Thousands of energy professionals rely on CEM to help them better understand and navigate these dynamic energy times. Visit newsdata.com to find out why and start your subscription today. Again, that's newsdata, one word, dot com. Welcome to Newsdata's Energy West, a podcast about the energy industry today and where it's going tomorrow. Hello, I'm Dan Catchpole, reporter with Newsdata's Clearing Up, and with me... Reunited again is my co-host editor and editor of Newsdata's California Energy Markets, Jason Fordney. We're here with some of our latest stories that we've been working on here at Newsdata. Jason, we're back together for the first time in what feels like a month. How are you been? It's been so long. <laughs> I know, right? I've been great. I had a little vacation and uh, I guess you were sick one week, but uh, we kept the thing going and um, no, it's great to be back. Yeah. Thank you for your patience, listeners. Yeah. But we got lots of content coming up as we were just discussing, right? We won't give it away, but Oof, yeah, a lot of good stuff coming up. Lots of good stuff. Yeah. Uh, and a bunch of really, uh, yeah, really big interviews or meaty interviews with some really interesting folks. Um, so watch your your feeds, your uh, podcast feeds. Uh, but for today, what do you have for us? All right. Yeah, I've got a few things to discuss today. First would be coverage from the Regional Issues Forum held September 12th. That's the Western Energy Imbalance Regional Issues Forum about some of the uh, things that they were discussing there. Then uh, a little item about intervener compensation in California, how it's uh, lagging behind basically how the California Public Utilities Commission owes a lot of back money to interveners, which is affecting their ability to participate in initiatives or uh, proceedings at the CPUC. And then some observations on West Coast offshore wind and how long or if we will see offshore wind turbines here off the West Coast. All right. Uh, and I've got a story about uh, the Southwest Power Pool expanding its regional transmission organization into the Western U.S. The So we'll have a second uh, organized market, fully comprehensive organized market in the West. And then uh, an update about Idaho regulators saying they're not going to take part in a uh, westwide push to set up an independent governance system to get to a new market, another organized central market. Uh, and then last, a story about where we are with long duration batteries. These are like 24 nice. hour plus 100 hour batteries. 100 hour. Oh, yeah. 100 hour. Okay. Right, well, without yes. further ado, I'll just uh, get us going here with the story. So this was some breaking news on Thursday, right as we were going to press. Uh, several entities, nine of the participants in the Southwest Power Pool's Western Energy Imbalance Service, which is uh, this SPP's smaller version of the uh, EIM run by KISO. So nine of the 10 entities said that they were committing to joining, uh, becoming full members of SPP's existing regional transmission organization. So that is a fully comprehensive uh, organized market that handles everything. Uh, so they're going to become like a Western branch of SPP. 
actually had a chance earlier to speak to Bruce Rue, uh, Senior Vice President at SPP, about this uh, this news and getting into the details. So that's one of the things that's going to be coming up in the, hopefully we'll drop this week. Uh, so watch your podcast feed for that. So these uh, utilities, they're mostly, and load serving entities are mostly in like Colorado, Wyoming area with some spillover into adjacent states. Uh, it adds about 5,000 megawatts to SPP's peak load. So that we'll have now two bouncing authorities within SPP's RTO. So those one part that's going to be in the Western interconnection and one part in the Eastern interconnection. So it has to kind of like solve for each of those, optimize for each of those, and then kind of cross optimize. Uh, and you know, this is, um, they say if this could be the start of, uh, expanding market services, then SPP is all for that. And they, he did say they are in, have been talking with some entities, uh, you know, not, not that they're like expecting to make any announcements. Yeah. He didn't tell me like, stay tuned announcements coming in the next few weeks, but they Mm -hmm. certainly sound optimistic about being able to get some other entities to join. So, yeah. Is at the same time that, of course, uh, SPP is pushing its day ahead market, uh, Markets Plus, that has a day ahead market and an imbalance service in it um, that is competing with Kaiso's extended day ahead market offering in the West. So, yeah, another big step here. So, we now have, we will now have two RTOs, assuming everything, you know, nothing derails this. Uh, we'll have two RTOs in the West come 2026. And this is also the first time that there's that will this will be the first time that a market has straddled the eastern and western interconnection. Yeah, that's interesting. You wonder what types of efficiencies that will create. You know, that linkage. And this is not a small number of megawatts here either. Now it's about ten percent of SPP's existing load. So, wow. Uh, yeah, certainly not just a rounding error. No. Yeah, Tri-State serves 42 retail distribution co-ops. And uh, yeah, so SPP currently across 17 Midwestern and Western states. Yep. But some solid growth here. That's uh, reporting from Abigail Sawyer. Yes. All right. And that's story together on Deadline. Thank you, Abigail. Yep. She's on it as always. Well, speaking yeah. of markets... We covered the regional issues forum. This is reporting from Lindy, Linda Daly Paulson from the September 12th RIF, as they call it. There's really two California independent system operator issues that were discussed. That's stakeholder input on its policies and its policy documents and market price formation. Um, this RIF is held regularly for people in the, the WEIM, or are we calling it the WEIM? We're still figuring that out. Um, and sort of serves as a venue for creating documents or issuing opinions for considerations for the EIM governing body uh, or for CAISO and its board of governors. So CAISO wants to improve the process for gathering and incorporating stakeholder input into its policy catalog and roadmaps starting in 2024. This is according to CAISO staff. They said the key is to identify and prioritize stakeholder initiatives for these documents. Reiterating throughout the forum that the grid operator wants to improve internal and external engagement. The policy catalog 
which lists all Kaiso's initiatives is, uh, quote, exhaustive and unwieldy, unquote. That's Jillian Beidler, who's Kaiso's, Kaiso's policy integration and government manager. She said that these are fair criticisms of the catalog and the goal is creating a more relevant document. There's about 60 different poly, po- policy and initiatives going on in Kaiso. And then a little bit on the price formation enhancement initiative. This is known as a show your math sort of thing. Um, and there's several different pricing structures under consideration, including the possibility of adding an extended flexible ramping product, as well as storage and multi-interval pricing optimization. The process through which market prices are determined can shift market outcomes and price signals determine whether there are sufficient incentives, for example, to prompt participation and ensure markets operate efficiently, also aiding reliability. So Kaiso is working on a suite of interrelated price formation issues with the goal of uh, linking the discussions in its working groups with policy, working on a straw proposal, and stakeholder input on these key building blocks for their process. I see they've uh, also looking at fast start pricing there. They're a really interesting conversation with Jacob Mays, the mm-hmm. uh, energy economics ac- uh, scholar. But fast start pricing, love to get him on here sometime to talk about that. It's kind of a minor issue, but He's got an interesting take on it, but uh, that flexible ramping product. What yeah. what does that entail? Well, that would or have they to still do. Have to flesh it out. I guess they're still fleshing it out, but you know, ramping is becoming a new uh, need on the grid. With with this, when, when solar comes off, flexible ramping. You know, more resources they can get to help with ramping and creating the right market incentives for those resources, I think is what they're aiming at here. Yeah. I swear, sometimes it feels like you hear people talk more about having to solve for the ramp than for the peak. Yes. Yeah, the ramp's getting massive. Tens, you know, tens of thousands of megawatts. My thing is interesting. I think it probably uh, demonstrates how much the issue isn't so much just how much energy, but how dynamically you can bring it online and just how flexible and responsive uh, and adaptive the yeah. system has to be. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And, you know, it's, a, as I said, really a, a growing need on the grid. And um, yeah, you want to be able to put the incentives in the right place for this. And I don't think the ramp's going anywhere anytime soon no it is not but uh well that was that was a great roundup uh from linda yeah she did a good job definitely worth reading to find out more um Mm -hmm. so the next story i've got a short little snippet here from the northwest but an important one uh so the idaho public utilities commission on september 14th announced that it will not participate in what is known as the Westwide Governance Pathway Initiative. So that mouthful is the name of a coalition of Western public utility commissioners who are looking to lay the foundation for an independently governed Western regional transmission organization. So uh, I think like eight, seven or eight state regulators came out, announced this idea back in July, gave it some more, put a little bit more meat on the bones at the end of August, 
calling for states to uh, collaborate in this initiative, to officially flesh it out and actually create a pathway. Kind of basically like uh, pretty late in the game here with with uh, as Kaiso and SPP come along with their day ahead proposals. But uh, state regulators are really hoping that they can set up a, uh, like they said, uh, this independently governed or independence, independent governance structure. Yeah. So Idaho, though, was the first ones to weigh in one way or the other. And like I said, September 14th, they just came out and said, nope, not interested. We're passing. Yeah. Uh, so far, though, Idaho Power, the biggest utility in the state, has also said it is not interested in joining an RTO and mm-hmm. it does not plan on going further than participating in a day ahead market. So, right. you know, if their biggest utility is not going to participate, uh-huh. I suppose the PUC, the commissioners don't see much interest or much need for them to participate. Right. And, you know, maybe that could change in the future, but this is a big deal. I mean, you've got Oregon, Washington, California, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and now Nevada all in this thing, but Utah says, no, thank you. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Idaho. Oh boy. Uh oh. It is Monday. Yeah. <laughs> Watch out. So that's a, a wrap up of some of our market stories. Uh, you've got a story about a delay in inter- funding for interveners at Kaiso. Yes, yeah, it's becoming a big issue. We had a, a, a really good story here from Ann Ernst, uh, really focused on the utility reform network, which says, it's owed about 5.5 million from the CPUC. The way this works is according to state law, the interveners, these are people that intervene into various um, CPUC proceedings, most of them nonprofits representing ratepayer interests. They get paid for this. Um, state law requires it within a certain time, but what's happened is it's drifted into years with millions of dollars. Um, sort of in this backlog. So uh, there's more than 200 unresolved claims from two dozen organizations totaling $20 million. And this was according to a letter to the state Senate and assembly from a group calling itself the Alliance of CPUC Interveners. This is kind of important because some of these groups say that their very existence is threatened by this because they've obviously have to fund their staff and their operations in an ongoing way. They're not collecting any money. It it makes it uh, difficult and really could cut down on participation from these groups. We did talk to uh, CPC President Alice Bushing Reynolds. She issued, a, issued us a statement that the commission has prioritized intervener compensation and is sensitive to the impact it has on interveners. Some interveners, which typically work on behalf of ratepayers, rely solely on the compensation to pay bills. We have a quote here, um, the inconsistency and difficulties associated with the intervener compensation process has meant the Greenlining Institute has significantly reduced our participation at the CPUC, where we advocate for communities of color on energy and telecom issues. That's from Vincent Lee, Senior Legal Counsel for Greenlining Institute. I said Greenling, this is not my day. Uh, But the CPU said, it brought on seven additional new staff members actively working through the claims. 
It's unclear when those were hired and how long they've been working on those claims. Uh, CPUC has awarded more than 8 million to 25 unique interviewers, interveners, and is continuing to explore new strategies to improve the timelines of processing these claims. I see they, they owe one group here, Turn, $5.5 million. Yeah. Well, at least that's Turn claims, has submitted claims for up to $5.5 million. Yes. <clears throat> and But it yeah. looks like uh, they did Turn was among one that just got a denial for at least one claim for 70,000. So yeah. not all claims actually pan out. No, they don't. I think but Yeah, um, I mean that's that's tough to like put time into uh representing interests at these hearings and then I <laughs> on the expectation that you as the public process is laid out, you get refunded or uh, reimbursed for those right. and then to have to carry those costs for a nonprofit, that's got to be a struggle. Yeah, uh, Tony's kind of really leading the the call on this one for good reason. And yeah, it's hard to run an organization with no income. So hopefully that will be addressed and uh, good story there from Ann. Yeah, certainly. So, well, so back up in the Northwest here, I had a story that was really interesting uh, about long duration strategy. So... I was going through Idaho Power's, uh, their upcoming integrated resource plan that lays out procurement for generation and other resources for the next 20 years. And uh, in some of their early modeling results, they've got 100-hour battery showing up. So that uh, caught my attention. I was able to interview the head of their modeling team. Uh, I just walked across my computer and, and turned one of my monitors off. <sighs> Anyways, oh, it is a, a cat. <laughs> you walked across your computer. The 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 cat walked across the computer. Uh, okay. but I, um, I don't know what. I got monitors flicking around left and right. All right, it's madness. Thanks for rolling with us, folks. Yeah, here uh, we don't hold anything back. Nope. So uh, the you know it struck me though that batteries in Idaho Power's 2017 IRP were considered kind of an expensive novelty that they said, hmm. hey, this is these are really interesting. We'll keep monitoring the technology, yeah. but they don't fit in right now. Hmm. And yeah. Idaho Power today is in the process of procuring uh, or and has procured or is procuring 160 megawatts of uh, storage, of four-hour battery storage. So we've seen this massive change in how uh, you know, batteries going from this kind of technology of the future to being the technology of today. And so it really seems like we are at that point with long duration batteries. So uh, Idaho Power is looking at 100 hour batteries. Now these don't show up in their planning until the 2030s. So you know, IRPs, as anybody familiar with them knows, What's on there one year is com might look completely different a couple of years from now, but mm -hmm. um, they are like penciling out in terms of the modeling and uh, not just that, but so Vista also has 24 hour or longer duration batteries in their latest IRP from this year. Uh, but more importantly, Form Energy uh, is getting ready to bring a one and a half megawatt, 100 50 hour or 150 megawatt hour battery system online uh, next year in Minnesota. 
with in a pilot project with a utility up there, Great River Energy. Yeah. And Form Energy, based in Massachusetts, is not the only one. There's a handful of companies that are developing these um, long duration batteries. And it really is, they're at a point right now with the, the importance of these planning documents is that it is sending a clear signal to uh, investors, there's an interest for these products. Right. And Form Energy is showing these are doable. This, this is doable technology. Um, you know, it's proven in the lab and Form Energy is getting ready to prove it in real life. And, uh, you know, I think we'll, we will be seeing real uh, you know, deployments, commercially available uh, you know, deployments of these systems sooner than we expect. So it's an interesting cool. story. Yeah, it's um, you know, long been the argument about battery storage that it's only four hours, and that's if it's fully charged when you need it. But hundred hours, this is moving more quickly than I expected. You know, we've heard about long duration, but and really going full yeah. force here. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll see if hundred hour actually lives up lives up to be a hundred hours. But yeah, you know, hey, fifty hour would be pretty amazing, right? I mean, we're talking about going from four hour to hundred hours. So if we fall a little short of hundred hour, I think it'll still be a pretty amazing um, advancement. Yeah. And did they talk about the technology? I mean, Uh, I didn't get into that so much. Um, You know, the fact that form energy is deploying, it's getting ready to deploy a pilot project next year. I kind of let it speak for itself in terms of like this is actual real world real world technology not just something that somebody's proven at a you know research facility at a national laboratory mm-hmm. yeah there's always integration issues with this type of thing but got to see it moving forward quickly because four hours is not that great no now kind of the industry standard yeah well so uh speaking of other new technology you've got a story about offshore wind Offshore wind, yep. I've been looking at this issue for a while and some of the obstacles that we see. There's some new legislation, Assembly Bill 1373. Clean energy advocates say this will spur the development of offshore wind. I guess this focuses on speeding procurement of resources with lead times longer than five years, which would include longshore, uh, offshore wind. President Joe Biden has obviously been working on this issue uh, early 2021, he issued the executive order expressing a goal of doubling this resource by 2030. We've only got a very small amount of offshore wind in America, as most people know, especially compared to Europe. And one pilot project off California. Um, but there's been some bad economic news recently. Danish company Orsted recently said supplier delays, uncertainty around the federal investment tax credit, which is ITC being critical for this stuff, and higher interest rates had hindered its Ocean Wind One project off New Jersey, its Sunrise Wind project off New York, and its Revolution Wind project off Rhode Island. Orsted said the U.S. offshore wind market still, quote, remains attractive in the long term, unquote, but there might be a couple billion written off related to this. Then we had that recent auction of offshore leases in the Gulf of Mexico by the US US Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, which received just one bid, pretty pretty lukewarm. Um, And Equinor, Shell, 
Anji, am I saying that correctly? Avangrid and other companies are asking for new contract terms on East Coast offshore wind projects. So some economic realities. We also have some of the things we've been covering here at CEM, like the ports need massive amounts of improvements to handle the, this equipment. And then we don't the, we don't have the workforce trained for this stuff. So a lot of this has me wondering how long or if I covered um, the Cape Wind project off Massachusetts for years. So it was approved in 2010. Finally, they gave it up in 2017. It was it was a big uh, kind of a debacle in the end. And one of the major problems is seaside residents. And I, as I said in the story here, predict that happening in California too. You're always going to get some opposition from people seeing these things, even though they might just be like a half inch off the horizon. And then, of course, you have the fishery, uh, the fishing thing, which has become quite a quite a big deal. A lot of con controversy in that fishermen interest feeling they're not being represented in the debate. And then other things like whales. Uh, it's you know, somewhat political on this. If anybody has seen any coverage of that, that's pretty clear. But yeah, just wanted to take a sober look at this. These, this is going to take a lot, but uh, we're seeing a big policy focus on this. So um, yeah, could be some time, but you know, uh, maybe we'll start to see some of these big projects come into fruition. I'm sure we will. Just another sign of how much things are changing. No doubt. And of course, on onshore wind doing doing well. So. Yeah. See how it goes. Indeed. For now, that's all from me, Dan Catchpole. Thank you for listening. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Pass it along to a friend and stay tuned for some of the episodes uh, coming up, like the my interview with Bruce Rue and some other really interesting uh, episodes we've got in the works. Energy West is edited and produced by our colleagues at Pioneer Utility Resources and Lucky Sound Studio. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at dcatchpole, and clearing up is on Twitter at cu newsdata. California Energy Marks is, is also on X, formerly known as Twitter, at cem newsdata. I'm on there at Fordney Energy. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you back here next week. <laughs>